Please take your Bibles with me and return to our study of Revelation chapter 12. God continues to unfold for us the great truths that are here in this book. And I have to say at the outset, these aren't the easiest things for us to understand. They're at times confusing to us, but not because God is confused about what is happening or confused about what will take place, but simply because our own minds are um, limited. We we don't understand everything that obviously is from the mind of God. He has spoken with clarity, and yet there are times when we are confused in our own minds simply because of our own inabilities. And so we return to Revelation chapter 12 and our study of what is to come for this earth in the end times. And of course, as you already know, and we have been in our studies throughout this book, uh, in recent times I was thinking, as I was thinking about our own study, um, especially in light of Easter coming soon in the next several weeks, just around the corner, Easter, of course, is about the return of Christ, really. It's about the return of Christ. You may not have thought about Easter in those terms because we often hear around Easter time, resurrection of Christ. And certainly it is true, it's Christ's resurrection day. But in reality, that is what resurrection was. It was the return of Christ. Christ went to the grave. He returned from the dead. He paid the ultimate price on the cross and three days later returned from the dead turned out of the ground to life, and then he ascended to the glories of heaven, having promised to return again. Our entire study in Revelation has been the anticipation of that glorious again return. It really is what it is. It's God telling us about what is to come and the return again of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have come to the the final stages before His return as God unfolds His plan of redemption, really primarily focusing on His redemption of His people Israel. Chapter 12, we have begun another interlude period. We talked about that last time, not an interlude in the chronology of the tribulation, but only an interlude in the telling of the chronology. Not an interlude in time per se, but an interlude, uh, a vignette for us, if you will, a a honing in, a a laser-like focus, if you will, on the telling of the chronology. And we could simply think of it as a perspective shift, really. That's all it really is, what we're finding here in chapter 12. We're now getting a perspective, and it's a perspective from heaven as it surveys the tribulation and before the tribulation time. It's a survey, a perspective shift from heaven concerning really Satan's continual efforts to thwart the divine plan of God. Satan's continual efforts to try to usurp God's plan concerning the redemption of His people. And as we learned last time we were here in this chapter, there are several players involved in the unfolding of this perspective uh, and, and the laying out of it by way of the heavenly signs. 
I, I showed us some of that last time and all the times the word heaven is used in these uh, chapters, chapters 12 through 15, and all the times I mentioned that Satan's name is even used and the perspective that we have known by these signs that appear in the heavens. And the first sign was that of this woman. You saw that in chapter 12 and verse 1. This woman is involved. She is pregnant with a male child. And as we learned last time, this woman represents Israel. This is a sign, a directional aid, a picture for us. This woman isn't uh, actually a woman in the sense that we would think. It is a picture of Israel. This is Israel seen in picture, and here she is seen as a woman. And we learn that she is pregnant with a child, and that child, of course, is none other than Christ. If you weren't here for all that we said last time, you can uh, get the CD or go online and, and hear the message there. But it's through Israel that the Messiah comes. And now, in verses 3 through 6, we are told of another sign. This is sign number 2, the second directional aid in this interlude or this perspective from heaven period. And I want to just read for us just these verses that we didn't cover last time, verses 3 through 6. John says, as he's writing down all that he saw, being faithful to, to write down everything that God has told him to write down, that he's seeing, he says, beginning in verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, And on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. You read that and you say, wow, that's about as clear as a pile of mud. That's about as clear to me in my mind as to what is going on. Who, who are these people? What, what is going on here? The first sign, obviously, John gives us is a view of Israel. We learned that last time as we looked at both here in this passage and the reality of what it talks about in the Old Testament in reference to Israel. This is a view of Israel as God had created them as he intended them to be. Intended them to be spiritually and physically the, the bringing in of the, the great news, the, the avenue through which you and I, even as Gentile believers, have received not only the Messiah who came through Israel, but the Word of God that you have sitting right there on your lap in front of you. It was through them that the oracles of God came. We have the privilege of that here, and so... God created them and intended them to be that very conduit and that avenue. And so here in the second sign, John gives us a view of Satan. Satan as the enemy of God, both in history and in prophecy. In other words, both in times past and throughout history until the coming of Jesus Christ. Satan has 
and is always the enemy of God. And we'll see this unfold here in these verses. Notice in verse 3, John's surprised by what he sees. Another sign appeared in heaven and behold. Anytime you see the word behold in Scripture, it's it's not a sense necessarily of, of a Wow, this is a surprise to me in that sense. But really, pay attention. This is really amazing stuff. Behold, John says here, as if he is in some way surprised to see who is behind all of Israel's sufferings over the years. In fact, I I don't believe there has been another people group in all of the world that has suffered more over the history of their very existence than the Jewish people. Behind every attempt in their suffering has been the great red dragon. You say, who is, who is the great red dragon? Well, verse 9 tells us who that is clearly. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan. So you don't have to be confused when you first come to verse 3 and read this other sign appears in heaven. Behold, Satan is right there. He is the great red dragon. He is the one who is behind all attempts to usurp and destroy the very redemptive plan of God for his people. And so now as we think through this, we understand that Israel is going to play a main part in the time of the tribulation, and so is Satan. Israel is going to play a main part, especially when you get to the second half of the tribulation, and we'll talk about that once we get to verse 6, the 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, that's the second half of the tribulation. Satan is playing a major role in all of it as well. So so when you look at this text, you can somehow really think about it as a theology of Satan. Those words kind of make you cringe when you put them together, but that's really what this is. This is a study for us, given to us by God, on Satan himself. The very schemes in which he goes about seeking whom he may devour. We are to understand the schemes of Satan. That's how we know his schemes. God tells us who he is. And so here Satan is described in some very interesting ways. Not only is he described as a red dragon, which, by the way, carries just the idea of someone fierce and deadly. That's really the language there. It's this dragon, which was a real animal in the Old Testament, a fierce animal, a, a, a blood, one bloodthirsty, powerful, destructive, fierce, deadly force. That's really what those terminologies here are saying. Satan is that. In, in other words, he is a killer. His desire is to kill, and not just kill uh, in a simple way, but to kill eternally. He he is just as Jesus describes him to be in the New Testament. He is a murderer from the beginning. That's what Jesus called him. But here in verse 3, he has seven heads and 
On his seven heads are seven diadems. Or crowns, that's the word. Seven heads, ten horns, and on the heads, seven diadems. So what John is seeing... What this is, is some kind of seven-headed monster described. We don't fully get to understand the seven heads here in this text. But we do get to understand who they are if you just go a little farther in Revelation, particularly over to chapter 17 just by way of the chronology of our time remember in the end of chapter 15 right the second woe was or chapter 11 the second woe was passed and the seventh angel sounded in the seventh trumpet are the seven bold judgments right and then we entered this interlude once the seventh trumpet is blown heaven sees it as if it's already completed in the sense that Christ is taking the kingdom the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord chapter 11 verse 15 we remember that And we don't pick that back up until chapter 16 when the six bulls are starting to be unleashed. And so the wrath of God then is unleashed. The the interlude period that we're in now is we're, we're, we're honed back on the reality of the tribulation being carried out in chronology in chapter 16. And then, of course, in chapter 17, part of the unfolding of that is these seven bold judgments have been unfolded. And one of them is the reality of the destruction of the one world system. And in verse 9 of chapter 17, or yeah, chapter 17, we read this, here is the mind which has wisdom. What is that? That is skillful understanding. Here's the mind who understands these things. The seven heads are seven mountains on which this which the woman sits. Don't be confused. That's not the same woman that's being talked about in chapter 12. This woman is not Israel. This is uh, the woman, the people of which are of the great city, verse 18 says. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That's the woman he's talking about here. That's not Israel. This is some kind of city which has its place of prominence and all the kings of the earth are under its purview this one world system that's coming but in verse 9 the seven heads are seven mountains on which this woman sits and they that is the seven heads are seven kings five have fallen one is the other has not yet come and when he comes he must remain a little while Right? And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, that is an eighth head, and his one he is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And the ten horns, which we also see in verse uh, 3 of chapter 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So you don't get the answer in chapter 12 as to who the seven heads are or the ten horns are. But here in chapter 17, you do get that reality. So it's not the same woman that he's talking about in chapter 12. That's a different woman in chapter 17. That is a city here in chapter 12. It is Israel and these 
heads are kings, the, or kingdoms, the, or mountains are kingdoms, the horns are ten kings. And I don't want to get into all that until we get to chapter 17. Otherwise, we'll become even more confused. But accept it to say that these seven heads represent seven worldly kingdoms. That's what they represent. And Satan is ultimately behind them all. Right? The red dragon here is Satan himself. We understand that. And he has seven heads. He's, he's behind them all. So in chapter 12, verse 3, Satan is pictured as this seven-headed monster who rules the world. And the seven heads represent the seven kingdoms. Some past, one present, one future, from at least John's perspective. So that's the first thing that we have here in verse 3. Secondly, verse 12, as I already said, says he has ten horns. Horns in Bible prophecy, horns mean power. They mean strength. And if we're to think about it, it makes sense even to us. Why? Because an animal's horns are, in fact, its weapons. They're indicators of its power. Bigger, sharper your horns are, the more damage you can do. And so here in chapter 12, again, like I said, we're not told exactly who the horns are, but like I showed you in chapter 17, these ten horns which you saw are ten kings. That's what it said in chapter 17. By the way, John would have clearly understood this. John clearly would have understood this reality and you say why because of Daniel's prophecy John being a good Hebrew boy being one who was taught in the synagogue being one who was taught the Old Testament taught what the prophets say would have known his Bible so go back for a moment with me back to Daniel chapter 7 Daniel chapter 7 sorry Reggie I know you guys are already past this Daniel chapter 7, Daniel prophesied about these things. Chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belteshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the summary of it. And he said, I saw four great beasts. Four winds of heaven were uh, in verse 2 were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts were coming up out of the sea different from one another. So Daniel has this vision of these four great beasts that are swirling around. And he said in verse 7, if you read just prior to that, it tells you one looks like a bear, one looks like a, a lion or a leopard. You have these different descriptions in verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. And it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. So four beasts come up. Three of them are crushed by this fourth beast who is a mighty beast. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. 
This ten-horned beast is the same beast being talked about in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3. It is Satan himself pictured here as a beast, pictured in Revelation, this great red dragon with these power, these kings under his control. Chapter 7 and verse 15. Daniel begins to interpret the vision. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. And then I desire to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth and iron claws and claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which the three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. They were waging war. Verse 24, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. You see, Daniel was seeing the same vision. And John, if he had known his Old Testament, which potentially and probably he did, would have understood these very things from Daniel's prophecy in reference to what was going to come as Daniel had seen in the Babylonian captivity and God had revealed to him through these night visions about what was to come. And so Daniel describes the form of world rule in the imagery of ten kings. Daniel was prophesying about the same time that John is seeing in Revelation chapter 12. And the whole point is this. Satan is ruling. Satan is dominating. And he's doing it through his puppet kings. And listen, this is not unusual for us as we think about it. Satan has ruled the world. I know we don't like to think like that, but God has given him opportunity as the prince of the power of the air to rule. And he will rule the world until the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14, the second woe is finished. The sounding of the seventh trumpet, the loud voices in heaven, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so Satan will have his kingdom until the Lord comes and takes it from him. And so until that time, this is the kingdom of Satan. Satan has, since he sinned against God, he has been continually attempting to bring pain, continually attempting to bring suffering, to bring death, especially to the woman And her offspring. Make no mistake about it. Satan wants to destroy Israel. They want to destroy Israel. That is his goal. He's been after God's people 
always seeking their destruction. And listen, God has allowed him to come very close. This seems so strange to us to think about this, and yet God in his mercy, God in his power, God in his the reality for him to be glorified in all things has allowed Satan to come very, very close to annihilating the promise of God through the line of Judah to promise that there would be a forever king on the throne of David. It's allowed him to come very, very close. You say, how close? Well, so close that it came down to one person. Go back to Second Chronicles for a moment. Second Chronicles chapter 21, because this is an incredible account of the history of Israel. The history of Israel whereby the very eternal promise of God, the promise through the Davidic covenant to have one rule in the house of Abraham or the the throne of David forever, the promise to Abraham that God gave and then reiterated to David, that eternal promise came down to one person left. Second Chronicles 21, verses 1 and following says, Then Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. Judah is the line of David. Judah is part of that promised seed. This is the line through which the Messiah must come. Remember, we are prior Messiah's birth here. Jehoshaphat dies, is buried in the city of David, and Jehoram, his son, became king in his place. And he had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat. Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, Sephatiah, all of these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them many Gifts of silver, gold, precious things, which fortified the cities of Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. That was the way it worked. You're the firstborn, you become the next succeeding king. Now, verse 4, when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all of the brothers with the sword. And some of the rulers of Israel also. Nice brother. Now that I'm secure, I got the kingdom. All of these others who could be part of the line, I annihilate. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And notice, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab did. Ahab, by the way, not a good king of Israel, bad king. Didn't walk in the ways of God, walked in the ways of Israel, worshiping other gods. Why? Because Ahab's daughter was his wife. Be careful, men, who you marry. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now notice verse 7. This is very, very crucial for us to see. He killed all his brothers, remember? He was the next in line, this line of David. He's the only one left. 
He did evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. Why? Because of the covenant which he had made with David, and since he, that is God, had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. You see, God says, listen, Jehoram, you're the last one. You're the one in the line. If I destroy you for being obedient, guess what? My promise is finished. God was unwilling to destroy Jehoram, even though he was a disobedient, ungodly king. Now go over to, well, you can just see the part of Jehoram's rule after that in verse 8 and 14. Or verse 8 and following. Verse 16, Then the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah, invaded it, carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons, his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. So after all of this, the Lord smote him with the in his bowels with an incurable sickness, and it came about in the course of time, the end of two years, that his bowels came out because of his sickness, and he died a great pain. And the people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret. Everybody said, good riddance to you. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. And then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. Right? They made him son because the band of men who came with the Arabs to camp had slain all the older sons. Once again, we're down to one guy. So as Ahiah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. Why? Because his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. She was a wicked woman. And he also walked in the ways of evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for there they, they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. So he's buried, dies. Now, verse 20, chapter 23, in the seventh year of Joida, Joida was the priest, strength, he strengthened himself and took captains of hundreds. Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ah, there's a son. And they went to Judah, gathered the Levites, verse 2. Then all of the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has spoken concerning the sons of David. And you notice as you continue to read through that, the Jehoiada made the only son that could be made son king. And his name was Joash. And in chapter 24, Joash was seven years old when he became the king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Joida the priest. And Joida took wives for him and became the father of sons and daughters. I don't think Joash was all that great afterwards because he 
was influenced in the wrong way and went the way, as I say, went the way of the dodo as well. But all through the line, God would not allow his promise to be destroyed. Behind it all, behind all of the murderous threats, behind all the murderous attempts to to rid Israel through the line of Judah of those kings as the nation of Israel had been split at the time to ruin all that, behind all of that is Satan. Satan's desire has continually been to completely annihilate the woman, Revelation 12, to annihilate Israel. To get rid of Israel once and for all. To eradicate the messianic line. To remove any ability for God to fulfill his promise. And yet he's never been able to do so. And yet Israel is continually the recipient of his efforts. Even today. He isn't omnipresent. He isn't everywhere at once. And so he has help. Go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. We see his help. And in and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And Satan sinned against God. In and through his sin, he took with him a third of the angels that God had created. I don't know how many that is, but it's myriads upon myriads of angels. That's known as the demons now because they fell with Satan. They are confirmed in their unholiness. Now stick with me here because right here in this heavenly perspective that we're getting, right here in this very moment in verse 4, it takes us all the way back to before the Garden of Eden. Before Israel's history, back to eternity past. When Satan rebelled against God and through his pride said that he would be like God. When he enacted a heavenly coup attempt against God and a third of the angels were swept away in his rebellion. And all of them, because of their sin, were sealed and damned forever. And will be in the place prepared for the devil and his angels one day. It's a place called hell. You've heard of that. Satan and his demons will be there. It will not be a place of fun. It will not be a place of revelry. It will be a place of torment forever and ever and ever with Satan and his demons. It is hell and it burns like a lake of fire and brimstone. So while Satan is against Israel, so too are those who are swept away in his rebellion. All of them, they hate Israel. Because all of them hate God. And in their hatred, they hate him, they hate his plans, they hate his plans of redemption, they hate his promises. And so he's not alone, Satan is not alone in this. He has his spiritual agents of evil. And just like we saw in 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 21 and following, he has his earthly agents as well. Satan has those who are his puppets, all attempting since the beginning of time to destroy God's people, to usurp the plan of God. And it says here, notice in verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman. 
who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Who was the woman? Israel. Who was her child? Christ. Satan was there that day when Israel, that day upon which Christ was going to be born, Satan wanted him to die. Even before Jesus was born, Satan tried to obliterate the Davidic line. We've seen that already. And since he couldn't do that, he wanted to destroy the child of the promise. If I can't destroy the line of David, I'll destroy the one who has come in through whom the promise is supposed to be. Notice it says here that he wants to devour the child. That word is katafago. It's, it's to eat, to, to eat like a fierce animal would eat. Obviously, this is figurative language he he literally wants to consume him he wants it to come to an end that's that's really what it's saying he wants the child to be of no avail to come to an end we know in new testament history he tried that right we know our new testament history right remember herod Herod feared the prophecy of the coming king. Remember when the kings came and told him that one was promised? Herod feared that, and so he declared that any baby born in a two-year period needed to be killed, any male birth. Matthew 2, verse 13, word came to Joseph and said this, Herod's going to search for the child to destroy him. And they took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and there was a place there for them to remain until Herod died. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became enraged and sent and slew all the male children in Bethlehem, all the environs from two years old and under, according to the time which had been ascertained from the Magi. That's exactly what Herod tried to do, kill Christ. Herod thought that if he killed every male child, he would surely get the one that he really wanted. So here in the biblical record in the New Testament... Herod was the active agent, but behind it all was Satan trying to eradicate the Davidic line. And if he eradicated the Davidic line, he would eradicate the promise that God had given to Israel. All throughout the ages, Satan has been trying to eliminate the woman Israel. Why? Because if he can eliminate the woman, then the promise is eliminated. If there is no Israel, there is no promise through which that could come. And so even today, the woman is still being attacked. In fact, you can just look at your scriptures down through the ages and see who has attacked the Jews. Egypt, remember, attempted to destroy the Jews. You say, when? Don't forget about Moses. Remember, Moses was hid in a basket because they were trying to kill all the Hebrew boys, remember that? And the midwives hid the Hebrew boy named Moses. Listen, that wasn't just a coincidence. God was preserving his line. Egypt tried to terminate the Jews. Assyria, under the rule of Sennacherib in Second Chronicles 32, tried to slaughter all the Jewish people. Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, worked to obliterate the Jews. You can read about it, Second Chronicles 36. Even the Medo-Persian Empire under the king sought their destruction. You remember in the book of Esther, Haman wanted to hang, wanted to obliterate the Jews and 
exterminate them and the lie was exposed by Esther and Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he wanted the Jews to be hung on. So even the Medo-Persian Empire was trying to eliminate the Jews. The Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to see them vanish from the face of the earth. Rome, represented by Caesar, was only the puppet of Satan who sought to wipe out Israel. Satan's been behind all those attempts. He wants to destroy Israel. He wants Israel to be annihilated. He wants Israel to be no more. Even in our near history, under the Spanish and Roman Inquisitions, the Jews were targeted. Germany, even in the early days, blamed the Black Plague upon the Jews. In fact, I was reading this week that even the Russians in 1892 committed horrific atrocities in a massacre of the Jews. And then just two years later, they set out to blame the Jews for every national problem. Of course, none of us would ever forget what happened under Hitler. In our short time, where six million Jews were massacred. Even today, you can read the news, look at the newspapers, do whatever you need to do to find out the news. Most Arab countries would not hesitate to obliterate Israel at the slightest provocation. Listen, Satan wants Israel gone. Why? Because through Israel, the Messiah comes. And through Israel comes the fulfillment of the promise of God to them through the covenants. And yet God said, I will not have them obliterated because my promise is solid. My promise will be fulfilled. My promise is forever. And to us who have been grafted in, it is because of their disobedience that we have any kind of spiritual blessing. Revelation chapter 12 shows us Satan's going to be Hot and heavy against the Jews in the tribulation. But Satan will never kill the woman. Never. In fact, verse 5 says she gave birth to a son, a male, who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You know what that is? You know what verse 5 is telling us? That's the birth of Christ. That's the incarnation. This is God with us. Didn't matter what Satan tried. Didn't matter what he did. Didn't matter what he tried to do to rid the world of the Messiah. The Messiah was born. He couldn't stop it. This is the child of promise. This is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's clearly a reference for us to Psalm 2, which is a prophetic psalm concerning the Messiah. In fact, go to Psalm 2 for just a moment. I just want to show us this so that you can link this in your own mind, in your own heart as you're even maybe talking about it with other people. Psalm 2, right out of the gate. We read this a few weeks ago, by the way, as our scripture reading. It says in Psalm 2, there is coming a son. The son is the child of God. Why do the nations 
Why are they in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? That is worthless things, things that will not work. The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers and take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed. Who's His anointed? That is Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. That's their thing. We want nothing to do with God. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed, here's what he's saying, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. You see, that's about Christ. John is is hearing that once again in Revelation chapter 12. This is the child given to the nations as as. Uh, their Messiah. This is the nations given to God as His inheritance. And He will break them with a rod of iron and crush them like pieces of pottery. You cannot stand against God. In any wonder in Psalm 2 and verse 10 it says, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Look, pay attention. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Why? Because you don't want him to be angry with you. Because if his anger is kindled against you, you will perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. You see, Psalm 2 is prophetically speaking of Christ. The Son is going to come and rule. By the way, the word rule in Revelation chapter 12, it's the same word that we translate the word in other places in the New Testament as shepherd. This one is going to come and shepherd all the nations. This is the Son of God, the one who has all power, all authority, and it is power linked with care. This is absolute authoritative power linked with the shepherding care of God. Don't you love that? Ezekiel 34, God rebukes the priests of Israel for not caring for His people, not shepherding His people. And in essence, in Ezekiel 34, He says, Because you have not done this, I will be their shepherd. I will be their ruler. I will be the one who cares for them. And then Christ comes and Christ said what? I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And so here in Revelation chapter 12, we get a glimpse of the birth of the everlasting shepherd king. This is Christ. Comes to earth through the nation of Israel the one who is to shepherd all the nations. And then notice verse 5 at the end, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Christ was born and Christ ascended to heaven. 
No word of his ministry, no word of his death. Just simply those two realities. Christ came and Christ has risen. Christ has ascended to heaven. Redemption has been accomplished. Christ having risen from the dead. God having been satisfied with Christ. Satan could not eradicate Christ before his birth. He thought he could eradicate Christ on the cross. But he couldn't stop Christ from crushing the serpent's head. Satan would not be able to stop Christ from assuming the earthly throne. And God is allowing John to see all of this. And we need to see all of this. We we need to understand all of this. Because throughout the tribulation, throughout the the time of the tribulation, from the beginning to the end, as we reapproach it in chapter 16, throughout all of that, Satan is going to be relentless. Satan is still going to be trying. Satan is still going to be attempting to remove Israel, to attack the Jews. He's still trying. He's going to continue to try. He wants the Jews annihilated, but he'll never... Succeed. Why? Because God has made His promise. God has made His promise. And so from verses 3 to 5 in Revelation 12, there has been a lot of history covered in this sign. The sign in heaven of the red dragon. We've seen history since before the creation of man when Satan fell all the way up to the point where Christ was born and caught up into heaven. Now, in verse 6, verse 6, we're returned to the tribulation. And the woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. You say, how do we know it's the tribulation? Because the time element's put there, 1,260 days. The time element we saw back in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period, 1,260 days, half of that time, 42 months, three and a half years. In fact, you see this even again over in verse 14, chapter 12, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Three and a half years. One times one plus two and a half is three and a half. The dragon hates Jews. In fact, in verse 17, he's so enraged that he can't destroy the woman. He went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Satan is enraged. So we get the picture. See, we get, the, we get the, the, the big view of it. The woman is Israel. She's given birth to the Messiah whose history on earth ended with the ascension. The actual history of Christ on earth ended with the ascension. And now, once Christ ascended, Christ began what? After Christ ascended, the church began. You see that in Acts chapter 1 all the way through the 
epistles of the church. And here you say, well, why isn't the church here? Why isn't the church involved in this? Why does it go from Christ being born to Christ being risen up and then right after that the woman fleeing to the wilderness? Why? Because the church isn't involved here. This is about Israel. So the woman flees to the wilderness where she's protected by God. God miraculously cares for her as a loving shepherd. So that even though Satan is still seeking their destruction, it will not happen. Will not happen. God's going to hide her. God's going to hide her. How? You say, how is he going to hide her? I don't know. I don't know. Some have speculated that they're going to flee to Petra, the place in Jordan, and hide in there because it's a single entrance to get in there. I don't know all that. It's all speculation. But he's going to hide her. In fact, we read about it even this morning in the Scripture reading that we read. I'll just remind us of this. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15 and following, So when you see the abomination of desolation... Spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Remember, we already saw that in Revelation where the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God as the God and demands worship. When you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his coat. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, oh my goodness, that's what he's saying. Listen, it's the worst time. Listen, if traveling is one thing and you've got to do it quickly, you don't want to be pregnant. It's hard enough to travel in a quick order, let alone be laboring with child. Pray you might not be in winter or the Sabbath. For then... There will be great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect Israel, those whom God is choosing to save. So this is a time when God will preserve the elect Jews from the slaughter of Satan at the hands of the beast. And they will be saved. And Christ will return to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And after the thousand years, the great battle will ensue. Satan will be bound and sin will fully be gone because God will create a new heaven and a new earth. So in Revelation chapter 12, we see a second sign, the second directional aid. Now we know three, at least, of the seven characters that are part of this aspect of the tribulation. The woman is Israel, the male child is Christ, the dragon is Satan. There's a fourth character to come, and it begins in verse 7, and we'll get to that next time. But we know his name. It's a little easier to figure out. Because it's right there for us. Michael and his angels. What a faithful God. What a faithful God. You know, we sang that that song, Behold Our God. What, What a faithful God. Faithful to fulfill his promise without fail. Think about what God has promised us. 
God will not allow any of his promises to fail. He is faithful in his shepherding care. He is faithful to all those who are his. What a promise. What a God we serve. Even when it looked as bleak as it would, God would not allow his promise to fail. Nothing can thwart his plan. Not even a spiritual war that we'll look at next time. Let's pray. Father, these are amazing things for us to behold. Incredible what you have promised. Incredible what you have said to your people. Incredible that we as non-Jews would be grafted in it all. Thank you that you are faithful. That you care for your name and your word even above your name. So that your word will never fail. Not one jot, not one tittle, not one portion will ever fail. What you said will in fact come to pass just as you have promised. And what we've seen this morning shows us clearly that regardless of what Satan attempts. He knows he's a defeated foe. But he certainly is working overtime to try to cause your name to be blasphemed among the world and for your promises to be ineffective. Thank you that we rest in the all-powerful God and that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Thank you for Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.